praise team, thank you very much. Faithful a week after week, leading us in praise and worship. And what I almost always say about praise and worship, it's one of the most important things about us. The glory in who our God is. Uh, teachers, Sunday school teachers, I want to voice my appreciation. We had promotion today. And just Sunday after Sunday, they're faithfully teaching our boys and girls God's Word. And so thank you very, very much as you do that. And then with Children's Church, we have those who just week after week. In fact, we're going to have to add into our numbers as far as Children's Church teachers as we go to two services. So if that's something you're interested in, see me afterwards, please. All right, I want to start out this morning with a few uh, Calvin and Hobbes comics. Calvin is receiving some good-natured instruction from his father. I don't know, is his dad, we ever given his name in the comic? I don't think we ever are, it's just his dad. Yeah, all right, here's one of them. So Calvin asks, why, why do my eyes shut when I sneeze? And his dad says, well, if your lids weren't closed, the Force of the explosion would blow your eyeballs out and stretch the optic nerve. and So your eyes would flop around and you'd have to point them with your hands to see anything. Gross. How come you know so much, Dad? It's all in the book you get when you become a father. Huh? How many of us dads got that manual? Uh, how many of us find this kind of humor disgusting? I, I, I love Calvin and Hobbes. They start talking this way. Anyway, you're all looking at me like... Grows. All right, let's look at another one. When are we going to get a Christmas tree, Dad? Oh, I don't know. Probably a little after New Year's. After New Year's? Sure, we can just go up the street and pack, pick the best tree from the neighbor's driveway. What? Yeah, sometimes there's still tinsel on the tree, too, so you don't even have to decorate it. We'll save some time and money. What wisdom is being imparted here, right? And there's Calvin with these big eyes and mom's feet, and he says, okay, she says, okay, what did, what did your dad tell you this time? <laughs> A father enjoying imparting some good-natured instruction to his son. This morning we're going to be looking at David and some of his sons, Amnon, Absalom, Adonijah. And it's a really a story of pain. It's not pleasure. Calvin and Hobbes we kind of chuckle about, but as we talk about David and his sons, it's a sad story. It's a sad story. And you should leave here this morning, and I don't want it to be a downer, a Debbie Downer, as they say, but you should feel the weightiness of our passage because that's what our writer wants us to get. That's what our writer wants us. And so I make no apologies in helping us understand God's Word and its application to our lives. Is that what you want, right? You want God's Word, yeah, unvarnished. Let's bring it to our lives. So, so open your Bibles to 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking at a larger section of Scripture. And you have notes. And we're going to see David's remorse over bad choices he made. I like to talk about the rele- re- relevance. I'm having a hard time speaking up here right now. Michael, did you screw this place up? What's the... the relevance of our passage. 
And we're going to learn some really big lessons today. One of them is that sin has consequences. You know, sin has consequences. We're quick to go to the mercy and grace of God, and we should. But that doesn't mean there won't be consequences to our sin. This idea we almost have, well, I confess it, there's mercy and grace, and then there's nothing after that, right? Well, wrong. There, There are consequences. Sin is serious stuff. And then this morning we're going to be talking about parenting. The importance of parenting. As we look at David, he's a good example of a bad example. He's not a good dad, and we're going to see that as we look at his life today. We usually talk about the relevance of a passage, and then we talk about where we've been. We spend some time reviewing. We're almost to the end of this whole study of David. I think we've been at it for some 18 Sundays, and it's kind of like we're starting to wrap this thing up. And I said, if I were to write a play on the life of David, I would have probably four acts. And the first act would be David's rise to prominence. How does that begin? How does that begin? The prophet anoints him, right? Samuel anoints David to become the next king of Israel. He defeats Goliath, rises to the position of leadership in the army. He's very popular. He's popular with everybody, maybe even Saul at first, but then Saul begins to look at this guy and think, here's this young upstart, he's a giant killer, he's popular with the people, he's probably going to take the throne. Right? That's what's going through Saul's mind, so he decides, I need to kill him. He's got to go. And so David spends eight years of his life on the run. That's significant. That's a big act in his life. But then with the death of Saul and his sons, what happens? Well, David becomes ruler over all of Israel, establishes Jerusalem as his capital, brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and God gives this great covenant to David, the Davidic covenant. I will sit one of your descendants on your throne for how long? Forever. Wow. But now we find ourselves in Act 4. And it's a sad finish to the life of David. It really should. It should should just stir us, break our hearts. David's remorse over bad choices. And over the past several Sundays, we've looked at David's adultery with Bathsheba and, and David's attempts to cover it all up. It just wouldn't seem to cover over. And so ultimately, he has Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, murdered He's hoping he's gotten away with it until who shows up and knocks on David's door? Who is it? Nathan, the prophet. What a guy. What a courageous guy. And he confronts David with his sin. And David starts to make all kinds of excuses. No, he doesn't. That's not how the story goes. David right away owns up to it, says, I have sinned. And the prophet says, well, there's cleansing, there's forgiveness. Last Sunday, we're in Psalm 51. We pulled out of 2 Samuel. Why did we go to Psalm 51? Because this is the heading of Psalm 51. A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so Psalm 51 is this beautiful psalm as David speaks of his confession, of his acknowledgement of his wrongdoing with Bathsheba. It's just beautiful. It really is. It teaches us how to confess sin. 
How do I confess my sin? Anybody here sin in the last month? If you don't have your hand up, you're sinning right now. I know that for sure. So now all hands ought to be up. Yeah. Well, what do we do with it? How, how do we confess it? Or do we cover it over? Do we just hope, you know, nobody sees it. No, no, nobody's seen this. God didn't see it. How many think God didn't see your sin? No, very good. No hands up. Yeah. Well, so David confesses his sin and he is cleansed. He's forgiven. Now, now we do know that the son born out of the adulterous affair with Bathsheba dies. He's told that, right? But, but there's cleansing. There's, there's forgiveness. Notice in your Bible, 2 Samuel 12. And I think our writer wants to make this clear. There's restoration. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she gave birth to his son and he named him Solomon. Hey, he's going to become the next king, isn't he? Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet and he named him Jedediah for the Lord's sake. And what does Jedediah mean? It's right there on the screen. What does it mean? Beloved of the Lord. I don't know of a child or a son named Jedediah. Anybody here know of a Jedediah? Nobody knows of a Jedediah. That's a shame. Oh, a few of you do that. That's a beautiful name, isn't it? Beloved of the Lord. And so David and Bathsheba are experiencing the grace and the mercy of God. That's what I think our writer's wanting us to seize. They're given a son after their sin. and He's to be called Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. So there's forgiveness, there's restoration. But, oh, the buts, that's an important word, isn't it? Three letters, but there's still going to be consequences to their sin. Forgiveness, restoration of relationship, but there are still going to be consequences to their sin. And that's what we see in the next six or seven chapters of Second Samuel. All right, That's where our writer is intending to go. To help us understand that there's still consequences. And notice chapter 12, verse 9. This was the judgment, the discipline declared by the Lord to David, we read there, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down your eye the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword is never going to depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of your eye the Hittite to be your wife. And thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. And I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with, lie with your wives in broad daylight. That's Absalom. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And so we read here of the consequences of David's sin, the discipline of the Lord. And that's exactly what we're going to see now as we continue on, beginning with chapter 13. We're going to see the consequences. We're going to see the pain of bad choices. For some 11 years, some 11 years, the pain of bad choices. I think that runs so contrary to to, to our understanding of of forgiveness of sin. We think, well, there's no consequence right now. I I confess that everything's good, right? Well, yes, the relationship is restored. We can still walk in the fullness of the Spirit, but there are going to be consequences. Sin carries consequences. Consequences. 
And that's what our writer wants us to see. Be not deceived. God's not mocked. What we sow, we reap. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you the story. Chapters 13 through 19. Let me, well, we don't have time to read those six or seven chapters, right? Let's, we're going to read through it for the next half hour. Let me just tell you the story. Starts out with Amnon, who is David's firstborn son. He's the oldest. Ammon is his oldest son. And Ammon is in love with his half-sister, Tamar. I'm using the word love loosely because he's not in love with her. He's in lust with her. He lusts after Tamar and ends up raping her. And Absalom, who is Tamar's full brother, is filled with hatred. So angry about what has happened to his sister by his half-brother, Amnon. And we read now, when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, neither good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, Tamar. And so he hates his half-brother and actually has him killed. A couple of years after the rape, he has Amnon killed. And so Absalom has to flee. And he flees to Gesher, which is where his grandfather was. So he flees to family and he lives there for some three years. And finally David allows Absalom to return to Jerusalem. So he returns after three years in a distant land. And for two years after that, David will not allow his son Absalom into his presence. I mean, he's in the city, but he's not going to be before the king. And finally, because of Joab's intervention, Absalom comes before his father. Can you imagine this? Five years of not seeing his father. Now he's going to be in the presence of his dad, the king. And we read in chapter 14, verse 33, So when Joab came to the king and told him, he called, David called for his son Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the king, uh, to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. And so we're, we think of what? We think of, well, there's reconciliation. And maybe initially at first, but it doesn't last for long because it ends up that Absalom wants what? He wants the throne of his father. And so he begins to conspire and he, and he plots the overthrow of his own father, David. And after some four years, he finally acts in rebellion. There's a coup. And David has to flee for his life, flees Jerusalem. And there's a civil war between David and those faithful to him and the rebel son, Absalom. And Absalom is what? He's killed, right? Joab finds out he, that Absalom is hanging from some tree because of his long hair. And Joab does him in. Thrust, I think, some two or three spears into him. But that's chapters 13 through 19. I just gave it to you in summary. In a nutshell, it's a span. I just spoke of 11 years. And what it is, it's the pain of the bad choices that, that David made. It's the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba. That is what our writer is wanting us to see. And that's what we need to leave then learning. What is the intent of our writer? There are consequences to David's sin with Bathsheba. And now you'll see them work out over the next 11 years. Wow. Wow. 
And so what I want to go on and do is develop just two points about David and his sons. The first one is David's responsibility for his son's actions. I want us to see that David assumes a great deal of responsibility for where all of this has gone. And then I want us to see David's remorse. You think, this is a Debbie Downer. It's going to be a bummer of a sermon. Well, well, in a sense, you want me to go where our passage goes, right? We want to learn the lessons. We don't want to varnish it all over, you know, sanitize it. It's kind of like, well, we didn't learn what this writer wanted us to learn. We just kind of went where we wanted to. We, you know, we don't like to talk about tough things. Well, hopefully not this preacher. <laughs> well, let's look at it. And so I want us to learn that sin has consequences. That's what our writer wants us to learn. And then the importance of parenting. And so the first big idea, David is responsible for his son's actions. Now I want to kind of quantify that. Quantify qualify it is is not solely. I'm not saying that David is solely responsible for their actions. They they assume responsibility, right? But but we're looking at it as to David's actions. That's what our writer wants us to see. And so David contributed to their actions, or all of that unfolds in, in three ways. And first and foremost is his sin with Bathsheba. That's where it all unfolds. That's where it all goes, right? There's a sin with Bathsheba and these consequences announced. Yes, they have another son, Solomon, Jedediah, but boy, Amnon from there rapes his sister and is murdered by his half-brother. But notice 2 Samuel chapter 12 again. The judgment announced, the discipline. Why have David, you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You've struck down your eye the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and you've killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. And now therefore the sword is never going to depart from your house. What a statement, isn't it? The sword's never going to depart from your house. Because you've despised me and have taken the wife of you, the eye of the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he's talking about Absalom, his son. And he's going to lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And so David goes on and he confesses his sin and there's cleansing. But as we see, there are still consequences. David is going to reap what he has sowed. He's going to face the discipline of the Lord. And it's going to go on for a long time. But we're looking at ways David is responsible for his son's actions. Number one is adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And number two is David's many wives and concubines. He had a lot of wives and concubines. He violated the teaching of God's word in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 17, the Mosaic legislation, Moses gives specific guidelines for the selection of a king. And the warning is given there, the king is not to multiply wives. But David does, doesn't he? We read in Deuteronomy 17, when, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen who will set you will set as king over yourselves. You, you may not put a foreigner over yourselves, which is not your countrymen. Moreover, he's not to multiply horses for himself. 
Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. And then verse 17, he shall not, the king shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. And that's what has happened to David. Want to guess how many wives he had? Uh, I don't think we know for sure. We know of seven wives and an unknown number of concubines. So so this number grows. We, we don't know. And out of it, we're told, I think it is in First Chronicles 3, you have to look it up yourself, but he has some 19 sons. Out of all of these relationships, 19 sons. How do you corral all that? Well, he couldn't. See, that was the problem. He couldn't. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, and I'm going to quote him a couple times today. It's a great picture of him. He says, what a nightmare of a home the palace must have been. No one has done a more realistic job of describing it than Alexander White in a piece he wrote on Absalom. Read it and weep. Polygamy is just Greek for a dunghill. <laughs> That's David. Yeah. Polygamy is just Greek for dunghill. David trampled down the first and the best law of nature in his palace in Jerusalem. And for his trouble, he spent all his afterdays in a hell upon earth. David's palace was a perfect pandemonium of suspicion and intrigue and jealousy and hatred. All breaking out, now into incest, now into murder. And it is such a household, if such a cesspool could be called a household. Well, he's writing really strong, isn't he? That Absalom, David's third son, by his third living wife, was born and brought up. A little ring of jealous and scheming parasites, all hating one another, collected round each one of David's wives. And it was in one of the worst of those wicked little rings that Absalom grew up and got his education. <laughs> Strong words. Writing of polygamy and its sad consequences. I want to make application to us in our culture today. And extrapolate the principle that violation of God's design, which is one man and one woman for life, this basic family unit, violation of God's design means trouble. It means trouble for a culture. Today, the, the many violations in our American culture of God's design, as we see couples living together unmarried, as we see the divorce rates, what they are, single parent households, homosexual couples, it's all brought devastation to our culture. Don't kid yourselves. How have we ended up where we've ended up as a culture? It's because we've chosen to go our own ways and redefine all of these sorts of things. That's why. Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And that's where we've ended up. I would hope you don't look at our culture and say, you know what, we're really doing quite well. I don't, that's, that's not my take on it. That's not my take, I'll give you my take. There's an article... I think it's 2015, the, the consequences of fatherlessness. Well, what happens when dad's absent? In a sense, we're going to talk about David being absent in his home. Some fathering advocates would say that almost every social ill faced by America's children is related to fatherlessness. I think it's an overstatement. 
but it's definitely clear that fatherlessness has had a tremendous impact. And he says six are noted here. The article does. As supported by the data below, and you'll have to look up the article and look at the data, children from fatherless homes are more likely to be poor, become involved in drug and alcohol abuse, drop out of school, suffer from health and emotional problems. Boys are more likely to become involved in crime, and girls are more likely to become pregnant as teens. Wow. The consequences well, when we go our own way. That, that was David. With all his wives and his concubines and all these children, this household, if you will, David assumes some responsibility for his kids to end it up. Wouldn't you agree with me? Come on now, let's see some heads. Wouldn't you agree that because of what he did in violating God's word, he's responsible? Oh, one final action as to David assuming responsibility for his kids end up is, is his neglect of his children. David neglected his children. Well, with all of his responsibilities as a king of a prosperous nation, and with all of these wives and concubines and children, I think we can say that David could not, did not properly attend to his sons. Uh, uh, that's a subjective, you know, there's no verse that says it per se, although I'm going to look at a couple of verses here, but neglecting his children. When it comes to Amnon and raping his sister Tamar, after the fact we read this. Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So David's angry, but we read of no disciplinary action. In fact, Chuck Swindoll picks up on that. I said I was going to give you another quote. Verse 21, now, when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. That's all? Classic passivity. Incredible paternal preoccupation. His head is somewhere else. It's been for a long time. These kids have raised themselves without proper parental authority and discipline. As we discussed earlier, this is just another consequence of sin in David's life. So with Amnon, we see the neglect. Oh, he's angry. But there's no indication that he did anything significant in response to his son's actions. And then I'd mentioned... Adonijah had problems pronouncing it earlier on. Well, when David is old, Adonijah declares himself king. Dad's dying on a bed somewhere, probably. And he decides, I'm going to declare myself king. And so our writer in 1 Kings tells us this. Now, Adonijah, the, the, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I'll be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. And notice this, verse 6. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done so? And he also was a very handsome man. He was born after Absalom. So you have this young guy, evidently very handsome, somewhat wanted to be aggressive and lay hold to authority. But verse 6, his father had never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done this? In other words, dad's absent, isn't it? Never crossed him, never questioned, never disciplined his son. Now, Adonijah's going to end up killed, isn't he? Yeah, because he's a threat to the throne too, so Solomon says off with his head. Wow. How would you like to have grown up in a family like that? Oh, you had all the prosperity and all the steak you could eat, but you had to look over your shoulders. Your brother was going to come and get you. Right? I mean, that's his household. David was a negligent father. 
What, what day is today? What's the date? September 1st. It was exactly 35 years ago, on this specific date, that an airliner was shot down. It was a Boeing jet, just like this one. It's, it was called KAL, Korean Airlines 007. It was September 1st, 1983. This particular jet with some 300 people or so on board with the people in the crew, the passengers in the crew, was going from New York to Seoul, Korea, and it had to stop off in Anchorage. Jeff, you're a pilot. You've heard of this, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so it stopped off and it left Anchorage. And over time, veered off course. Veered off course. You can read it. I went to Wikipedia. Boy, they had this long explanation of it. Let me just say, veered off course. And, and it ended up into Soviet airspace. And then so you see the, the, the intended path of the jet going from Anchorage to Seoul, but that was the actual path. And so the Russians intercepted it, shot it down with tragic consequences. All the people aboard killed. Great tension between the U.S. and, and, and Russia. And I want to say to parents, when we veer off course... You know, who knows how some of these small decisions end up pushing off course. When we veer off course, the consequences can be tragic. And that's what we see with David. He veered off course with tragic consequences. Just tragic consequences. You see it, right? You see it. I think I'm opening up the passage properly. and You see it. That's what our writer wants us to see. Boy, the tragic consequences. Scripture speaks of and warns that God punishes the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. It's in the Old Testament. Stated at least twice that I know, maybe more times. We read in Exodus 34, the Lord descended. This is with Moses. He's getting a second set of the Ten Commandments. The first one, you know, in his anger he broke. So he's given another set. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. We like to see this compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, bounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yay! Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Why do the third and fourth generations? Because a household would usually consist of three or four generations. And so you would have the impact of one man with his son, with his grandson, and with his grandchildren. That's where I'm at in life, right? I have an impact upon a son and a daughter and their families and grandchildren now. Wow. Is there forgiveness? Yes. But oftentimes, there are dire consequences. That's such an important lesson. I believe I need to learn in my own life because when we so quickly in our sin go to the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God, it's like, all done, all clean, no consequences, I just sail on, and that is not true. Now, God in His grace and His mercy may just cover it all over and there's no consequences, but that's not ordinarily what happens. And we see that with David, don't we? Oh, there's confession, there's there's forgiveness, there's cleansing, there's even another son. Help me out, what's his first name? Jedediah, thank you very much. Oh, there's forgiveness, but there's still consequences. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Kind of heavy, isn't it? 
Yeah. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I'm, I'm going to tie this up a little bit, but we're even going to talk about David's remorse because these are just the consequences. David's heart in all of this is broken. And somehow, as I preach this passage, we, we need to sense that. We, we don't need to go out of here kind of dancing out of here. And it's like, wow, we need to learn that sin has consequences. And I, and I better be a good parent if I've got kids. Yeah. Because I'm coming with great impact. Uh, second main point was this. David's remorse over his son's actions. You just let me take you to one passage, Second Samuel 18. Absalom rebels against his dad. David flees Jerusalem. Joab's the captain of his army. Well, things don't go well for Absalom and his rebellion, his coup, and he's killed. And so word comes to David about the death of his son Absalom. How does David respond? Notice. Behold, the Cushite arrived, and the Cushite said to David, Let my lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And then the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? What about my son? What about my son Absalom? And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. In other words, he's dead. He's dead, king. And what is David's response? The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Oh, what remorse, isn't there? What brokenness over the consequences of his actions as it's brought about through his own contribution, the death of his son, Absalom. And he is broken. He's devastated over it. In fact, to such an extent that, that he's broken over it, and the army's coming back, and David's mourning the death of his son, and Job says, you better get your act together, because you're mourning the death of your son, and you're not welcoming your army that defeated them back. Wow. And so David does get his act together. He goes out and he congratulates his army for their victory. So he needed that rebuke by the commander of his army. You better watch what you mourn over and what you celebrate, David. Yeah. But David's broken. The remorse is, 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 is palpable, isn't it? You can feel it. And so we ask the question, we want to ask the question, uh, how do we apply this? How do we apply this? And I think I got the passage right. Okay, it's not like, boy, Pastor, I think you misinterpreted that passage because there really is no passage of Scripture that's such a Debbie Downer, is there? Well, there is. We just looked at it. The consequences of his sin. The remorse over it all. And so my first application is this. I, I am thankful for the honesty of Scripture. I am thankful for it. That it doesn't sanitize things. We're given the truth about David. Isn't that great? Oh, to learn the truth and and to see these kind of lessons and to learn these lessons. I am so thankful for Scripture. It doesn't just varnish things over. It's like, here's the whole truth. Now, it breaks my heart in a sense about David because we've learned to love David. We've seen this young guy kill a giant, become a great leader, lead the nation to new heights, and now look at him. Doesn't it break your heart? It should break our hearts. But I am thankful for the honesty of Scripture. Because it says to us, you don't want to go there. 
He's a good example of a bad example, isn't he? Isn't he? And it should grip our hearts. We should say through all of this as we leave and we should be talking over the dinner table. Boy, oh boy. I don't want to end up like that guy. Oh. And we don't have to. That's the good news in all of this. We, we can do differently. And in fact, Scripture says, hey, if you're wise, you'll do differently. 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things, talking about Israel's sin, happen to them as an example. And they're written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so that's the idea. We look at David, and, and there's a lot we can learn from the first part of his life. But, oh, there's some deep lessons to learn as, as we look at Act 4, the final act, as things kind of close on the life of David. It's like, wow. God wants me to learn from the example of his life. This is big, isn't it? Isn't this big? I want to close because... There's a gentleman, Gary Rossberg, who works with families, and he writes about learning this lesson, the importance of his family. So let me close, and then Jack is going to take us to the communion table. I'm so thankful for the communion table, as light as we talk about sin and its consequences, that there is forgiveness. But a father's legacy, describing for the hundredth plus time the moment that saved his family, Gary Rossberg, still gets a nervous glint in his eye. It happened at his home in Des Moines. While cramming for his doctrinal thesis and counseling, Rosberg's younger daughter, young daughter, Sarah, burst into his study with her freshly sketched Rosberg family portrait. Too busy at first to take notice. Rosberg finally gave in. Oh, okay, let's see your picture. Oh, that's nice. He said absently. I'll hang it on the dining room wall. The child left the room and Rosberg felt uneasy. Something about the innocent stick figure seemed wrong. He, he did a double take. There's Mommy, Sarah, Sister Missy, the dog Katie. No problem, but where's Dad? There was no Dad in the picture. Rosberg called Sarah back in the house. Honey, he said sheepishly, well, where's your Daddy? Oh, she replied, you're at the library. Said it nonchalantly and pranced from the room. Rosenberg sat frozen at his desk, his carefully cultivated calm dissolving under the weight of those four simple words, you're at the library. He was scared. Days passed, weeks. He earned his doctrinal degree with the sad realization that 11 years of his life had been sacrificed for that trophy. 11 years that had made him a stranger to his wife and kids. And one interview he found the nerve to speak and he asked Barbara, is it too late for me to come home? After a long pause, his wife answered, The girls and I love you very much. We want you home, but... Rosberg's neck tightened. But you haven't been here. I felt like a single parent for years. It was the answer he feared most. The carefully controlled world Rosberg had spent so much time grooming was unraveling. His daughter had drawn the picture. Now his wife had spoken the words. He lay in the dark recalling the missed dinner, studying just a little longer as Barbara waited at home. He thought of the canceled vacation so he could finish a class. He lamented the day his daughter, Missy, refused to sit on his lap because she didn't even know her daddy. What kind of legacy was he leaving? He was a stranger in his own home. And suddenly, clear-headed, Rossberg knew what he had to do. He would win his family back. Suddenly, that became the most important thing in the world to him, more important than degrees and prestige. What were they worth if his family didn't even know who he was?
He knew it would come at a price. Rosberg couldn't demand or announce his return. He would have to serve his way back. A lesson learned after eight years, or 11 years pursuing his doctorate, neglecting his family and learning, boy, I messed up. Is it too late? Now he's going to start serving and getting back into his family. Boy, this stuff hits home, doesn't it? I don't want to pull any punch from anybody if, if the Spirit of God is speaking into your life and saying, you know, this is you. you. You need to be the man in the home or the woman in the home that God would have you be. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's consequences when we don't go God's way. They can be very severe. And so let's broaden it. It just doesn't have to do with the family. It's, there's consequences when we go our own way. There's consequences to sin. And, and I'm learning this lesson right along with you because you know what? I'm so quick to preach the mercy and the grace of God in our lives. And we sin, yes, but you can confess it. And, and you just get right on with things. No big deal. I'm changing my tune because I realize it is a big deal. Be not deceived. God's not mocked. What we sow. We're going to reap. Can there be forgiveness? Yes, as we confess our sins. It's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there still can be some very, very severe consequences. Do you see it in the life of David? Do you? We see it in the life of David. Father, we give you praise for your word. And we want to hear it unvarnished. We don't want some preacher up here just glossing everything over and making it all nice and neat because it wasn't nice and neat for David. As he cried out, oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, what have I done? How have we ended up here? So, Father, would you bore into our minds and our hearts these great truths? That sin has consequences. Oh, we praise you for your grace and your mercy, and we're going to celebrate it now, that the relationship can be restored, but sin still has consequences. And especially in our homes, especially in our homes, that's what we say. We cry out to you. We thank you that you will be faithful to us as we leave here. And you'll continue to speak into our minds and our hearts and make our lives and our homes what you would have them be. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jack.